the revolution will not be televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. Hi, this is Rick Allen. And I'm Leilani Albano. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the Internet and technology and how they're shaping culture, along with every other aspect of our lives. The digital revolution is indeed awe-inspiring, but can also be used for nefarious purposes. We're here to help prevent some of those abuses. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org and digitalvillage.org. So, on with the show. Hi, this is Rick with Digital Village. Many Americans could start paying for COVID-19 treatment and testing thanks to plans by the Biden administration to end public emergency declarations by May of this year. The White House announced the move in response to two Republican-backed measures to end the declarations. Once the COVID emergency measures end, people on Medicare, Medicaid, and private plans will have to start paying for things that were once free, depending on the health program. That could include testing, treatment, and vaccinations. With the end of the emergency declarations, states will also start processing Medicaid redeterminations and removing residents who no longer qualify. This could leave millions without medical coverage. President Biden's plan is to end the declarations, even though COVID-19 rates in this country are soaring. As of March 21st of this year, the U.S. leads the world in both cases and deaths. With us to discuss the issue is Jeffrey Klusner, USC Professor of Clinical Population and Public Health Sciences. He spoke with Digital Village's co-host, Leilani Elbano. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Tell us about President Biden's move to end COVID emergency declarations. Is it a good idea? Yes. So we've been in the federal public health emergency and the COVID emergency, which was put in place by Donald Trump in March 2020 for three years now. And we are definitely beyond the emergency phase. Some people are, may take issue with that, considering that the U.S. has some of the highest rates in the world. Well, it depends really what we're talking about when we think about rates. So remember, from the beginning of the pandemic, it was all about flattening the curve and preserving hospital capacity. We did not want to see the disaster that we saw in New York City in end of March, April 2020 ever uh, occur again. So the idea was to flatten the curve, keep people out of the hospital and keep deaths low. So right now in mid-March 2023, our hospitalization numbers are the you know, lowest that they've been in a long, long time. Our death counts are also low at a few hundred a day. And it's also important to recognize that those hospital numbers and those death counts are very inaccurate, right? So there's a lot of different reasons why they're inaccurate, but currently they're not really a good measure of what the true burden of COVID is across the United States. And this was a problem very early on in the uh, pandemic that the, the case definition was really not based on what we do in traditional surveillance or epidemiology. A, a case is actually an event and it's an occurrence in an individual of a specific condition. But early on uh, for also very complicated reasons, 
cases became defined by the media as a positive test. And, you know, a positive test is highly influenced by who gets tested, when people get tested, if they're symptomatic, if they're asymptomatic. And even with all those caveats, the positive test or the cases right now are at uh, almost an all-time low. And it seems like there isn't much of an appetite to keep these kind of emergency declarations for the current administration to maintain them. Well, you know, I mean, emergency declarations, emergency response has an important role. Um, absolutely. If you think about you know, other types of natural disasters, whether it be floods or fires or earthquakes or, or tornadoes, there are emergency declarations for a time-limited response. And that time-limited response allows uh, federal or state governments to act in a certain way to provide resources in a timely manner to unburden different kind of procedures from bureaucracy and really help people where they're at. But emergencies don't last forever. And this one has lasted uh, three years and it's definitely, uh, quote, time to unravel the emergency and get back to school, get back to business and get back to normal daily life. For people who don't really understand these declarations, what wasn't happening on the ground and how did it help the response to COVID? Well, there were a lot of things that the emergency declarations opened up. The most obvious ones were the ability of the FDA to rapidly approve diagnostic tests and uh, medications and other types of uh, countermeasures. So traditionally, the FDA can take years to approve things like diagnostic tests or vaccines. But we saw diagnostic tests getting approved in uh, a few months. Uh, there was a you know, a, a name change. It was authorized as opposed to approved, but authorized allowed companies to uh, market and sell the products. We saw the vaccines authorized quickly. We saw treatments authorized uh, quickly. So that, that was probably the most impactful thing for individuals. And without, you know, declaring an emergency, we never would have additionally had the resources to support those massive testing sites that we had in football stadiums, baseball stadiums, parking lots around the country. I mean, for years now, you know, it was difficult to walk down the street without seeing a testing site or early on, people I'm sure remember, you know, waiting online for hours or in their car for hours trying to get tested. But all that infrastructure, all the staff, um, all the resources that went into make that happen were you know, made available through these emergency declarations. Also, how did it affect the accessibility to Medicaid? So that was definitely an important aspect. So prior to the pandemic, roughly about 60 to 70 million people were on Medicaid, right? Medicaid is the federal national uh, insurance health program for people who are at a certain socioeconomic status who's individually or, or based on family income have below a certain level. So simply it's federal health care for poor people. And Medicaid went from about 65 to 70 million enrollees to over 90 million. So it was the you know, largest increase in Medicaid ever. And part of that was because there was no requirement for annual renewal. And that's one of the big changes that people really need to be aware of, that once the emergency ends, I mean, it's ended already in California officially, as well federally, people are going to have to go back to annual renewal 
of their Medicaid or their Medi-Cal in California. And people need to be aware of that, that when they go to seek medical services, if they haven't renewed that, they'll have to go through the renewal process again before they can get medical care. So essentially, we see two big changes with these declarations. There seems to be the streamlining of COVID treatment and care, and then you have this accessibility to free, low-cost health care for those who need it and, and made it easier, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it made it easier, increased access, and really allowed us to get our technical tools into place to do testing, vaccination, treatment, and provide medical care. Obviously, I mean, there were other impacts as well, and uh, that really occurred at the local or county level, sometimes even within the counties at the city level, in terms of all the different regulations that were put in place for business closures, for school closures, for masking requirements, for stay-at-home orders, and all those activities that were put in place in the name of social distancing, which at the beginning of the um, pandemic, you know, what, what was important to reduce the spread. But, you know, we actually learned pretty quickly in summer 2020 that those types of interventions probably not that helpful. They were particularly harmful for some populations. And at the end of the day, as we've learned, you know, almost everyone got infected. That may seem to be a controversial position taken. Can you give me an example of how it didn't help? Well, I think the you know easiest example is in the school closures. So it might have made sense in spring of 2020 because we didn't have vaccines, we didn't have treatments, and um, people were applying what they thought they knew about influenza to SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. They were taking influenza control principles, which was in what's called the pandemic playbook, and applying them to SARS-CoV-2. And we've known forever, influenza really is driven by spread among children and spread from children in households. But you know, that's really not been well documented for SARS-CoV-2. And once it became apparent that SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, was airborne, and there was kind of wide community exposure. I mean, I'm sure people think about the kind of absurdity of keeping bars and restaurants open while schools were closed. And, you know, the idea that this was going to be a control strategy uh, when there was a lot of other community exposures didn't make sense. And then also Californians were, you know, I think, appropriately uncertain about the benefits of closing parks and closing beaches and putting up barriers so people couldn't go into public outdoor spaces. There are many of us who felt that outdoor transmission was extremely unlikely, just based on basic principles of infectious disease epidemiology and preventing people of access to outdoors and keeping them, encouraging them to stay indoors was actually completely wrong strategy. Well, I guess you live and you learn. We, we had these strategies, we saw what the effects were or what they weren't. And so then, you know, we were able to move, but at least we had these declarations to make those kind of calls, even though, like you said, they weren't always wise ones. Yes. And hopefully, you know, there will be uh, lessons learned. I mean, one thing we know about history is it tends to repeat itself. And in the 1918, 1919 
great influenza, the flu pandemic then, there were the same battles about masking, the same fights in different cities about closures and same lack of evidence about what works and what doesn't work. But on the flip side, we created amazing vaccine with a technology that was under development for 20 plus years, this mRNA and the mRNA platform, that kind of vaccine design really became a super important tool that ultimately protected millions and millions of lives, at least in countries where there was vaccine access. Well, some are sounding the alarm that this could mean the end of Medicaid coverage for for many. And, you know, we did discuss that as well as access to free vaccines and testing. What are your thoughts and what kind of impact is this going to have on the uninsured? Well, two points there. One is we have to make it very clear that California state law requires no cost provision of COVID tests, vaccines, and treatment. That the Department of Managed Care which is uh, part of the California Health and Human Services Agency. So the California Health and Human Services Agency has four main departments. One is the Department of Managed Healthcare. The second is the Department of Healthcare Services, which is essentially Medi-Cal or what, uh, you know, Medicaid or what's called Medi-Cal in California, the Department of Public Health. And then they have a fourth department that no one really knows about called the Department of Healthcare Access and Information. But the, the first department, Department of Managed Care, is the department that regulates health plans. So commercial health plans in the state of California, and they have regulations that prohibit health plans from charging people for tests, vaccines, or treatment. Obviously, that means that you have to be a member of the health plan. If you're not a member of the health plan, then either you have to be on Medi-Cal or you fall into the third bucket of uninsured, which yes, does mean for those who are completely uninsured in California, access to uh, tests, vaccines, and treatments is going to be more difficult. In terms of the no-cost provision in California, is that long-lasting or is that only for the next six months after the March deadline? Right. So right now, um, that no cost, those state laws extend these requirements for no cost test vaccines and treatment through November 11th, 2023. And then after November 11th, 2023, those no cost requirements only exist if you're within that health plans network. So basically, you have to be in LA Care, Molina Care, something like that, those Medi-Cal plans. And if not, then you don't get access to it. Right. It means you have to access those um, vac- those tests, vaccines, or treatments at uh, providers that are part of that plan. So if, if you go you know, to a testing site next to the airport and that airport testing site is not part of your health plan, then you're going to have to pay for it. But if you go to a testing site that's part of your health plan, you're going to be able to get no-cost tests. What brought on this move to end the declarations in the first place? We do understand that there were scientific studies and so forth, but in the White House, what prompted the end of these declarations? Well, I mean, I think there were, you know, three factors. One is the scientific, uh, the end of this emergency with the large number of people going to the hospital is over. 
We have what we call population level immunity, where more than 99% of Americans have some form of immunity, either due to recovery from infection or vaccination. And we have treatments available. So medically and scientifically, we're not in this emergency state. I think, secondly, socially, people are exhausted. It's been a very difficult pandemic. We've seen uh, rates of, you know, mental health issues in young adults um, increase. We've seen problems increase with substance use. We've seen, you know, other mental health consequences. So socially, there was a good rationale to kind of move us forward and put uh, the pandemic behind us. And then third, obviously, obviously politically, right? I mean, there's always going to be some political rationale. And I think President Biden wants to get ahead of his Republican colleagues and say that he was the one who ended the emergency. He's the one who led us through the end of the pandemic and take credit for the job well done. I feel like that's where the confusion is, depending on how you look at it, right? There's this one side we want to get past the emergency level of COVID. And then there's another side saying, well, what is this going to do to those who didn't really have great access to begin with, with the declarations, and now we're ending them. What kind of impact are we going to have on the the most vulnerable communities? Well, I mean, the most vulnerable communities will have a negative impact. So certainly the data clearly show that when you eliminate the annual requirement for Medi-Cal renewal, you can retain a lot of people on Medi-Cal. But Medi-Cal also it supports clinical medical services. So if people aren't accessing those services, some people could argue, well, what's the point of just keeping them enrolled in the Medi-Cal program? And once they start to access services again, if they remain qualified, if they remain in that lowest income bracket, or there, there are some other unique conditions, disabilities that make people eligible for Medi-Cal, if, if those things you know have not changed and they're still eligible, then it you know, allows them to uh, re- to retain, to renew, to be back on Medi-Cal and have those services covered. I mean, it really you know speaks to the underlying problem that you know the United States needs a national healthcare system, right? I mean, we are the only country in the world really that does not have a national healthcare system. I do global health research for the University of Southern California in Vietnam, in South Africa, in Botswana, in Peru. I work with colleagues in many other countries as well. Every single country has some type of national health plan. They provide at least the basic minimum services of preventive care, vaccines, treatment for hypertension, treatment for diabetes, cancer screenings, and th- th- there's a you know a basic human right to healthcare in the United States. We've not embraced that human right to healthcare, and we continue to have debates about what are human rights in the United States. And unfortunately, care has fallen off as people are arguing for should be a basic human right in the United States. Right. And if you think about the declarations, we're not even talking about well, you know, they really help to bring forth. COVID treatments and vaccines, there was support for that. 
we're not even talking about that. We got people on some kind of national health program, and that in itself seems to be useful. And now there's an estimate that there will be two to three million Californians who may lose their Medicaid coverage just by the ending of these declarations. Right. And but, you know, people, if they're still eligible, will have the opportunity to renew. So from other people's perspective, people should have to renew on an annual basis. People should have to reprove their eligibility. That's a very business corporate focus that says it's not a right to have health care. It's a privilege. For those who have populated the jails and those in the senior centers, what kind of impact will the end of the declarations have? How can we help them through this transition? So more than 10 years ago, the courts found that healthcare in California prisons was so abysmal, so bad that it was against the rights of prisoners. And actually in California, prisoners are the only population with a constitutional right to health care. So the federal judges, federal court found that because the state had violated their constitutional rights, they were going to take over health care in the prison system. For you know different reasons, I've been doing a lot of prison visits over the past uh, two years as a COVID expert, trying to help and advise them in terms of their programs and assessment and evaluation. The prisoners in California right now have excellent access to testing, excellent access to vaccination, very high vaccination coverage, excellent access to all the different antiviral treatments, including the monoclonal antibodies when they were necessary. So it shows me if you actually have a, a system in place and a right to health care, it can work. Okay. And those in senior centers? We knew that the senior centers were hit the hardest in the beginning in terms of COVID, and we, we know that the declarations have helped. Uh, what kind of impact will they have with any of these declarations? Or are the senior centers in general in a good position to be handling these COVID numbers, even though they're dwindling? By no means are senior centers in a good position for very much at all. I mean, they're still understaffed, under-resourced. It's a, a difficult place to be. It's a difficult place to work. What the emergency declarations did specifically was it waived uh, some training requirements for hospital and nursing home staff in order to maintain staffing levels. So you just maybe needed a temporary certificate or a temporary license, or you didn't have to have your license or your certificate renewed on an annual basis. So with the ending in California of the emergency, those um, waivers will expire. And, you know, that may affect the number and level of certified nursing assistants and home health aides. They will have to return to their regular training uh, schedule. They'll have to submit their certificate renewals. Uh, secondly, the emergency declarations allowed for um, an expansion of space in many of these facilities, what they call medical surge capacity. So there has been a long history of regulations in terms of how many people could be in a room, how many people could be in a facility, what the nursing or staff ratio to senior member in the facility was. A lot of that was suspended to allow, you know, more capacity in the facility. So after the emergency ends, they go back to prior regulations, and that actually may make it more difficult and 
lower the capacity. On the flip side, it might improve the ratio of staff to people who are living in the facility. So the ultimate ultimate impact is unknown, but we know you know elder care uh, is is a major problem and challenge in California as the population overall ages. You know, it becomes more and more difficult to provide uh, compassionate, effective care. What is the best case scenario? Is there a political will to maintain a lot of what the declarations are doing? Or where can we look next in terms of improving and maintaining good COVID care as well as health care? Well, I think the kind of most likely thing and the thing with, with the biggest tailwinds or push behind it is to maintain telehealth. And whether that's political will or telehealth corporations with big bucks saying this is, you know, a great opportunity for us, uh, the telehealth providers, it's likely that telehealth will stay and will expand. I mean, there's still some requirements that may go back in place, you know, such that a telehealth visit should be followed up by an in-person visit in a certain amount of time or at least schedule for an in-person visit. But Telehealth, I think, has been transformational in terms of access for many people. And another spinoff technologically from COVID is going to be these home tests. So now we've seen, yes, it's very easy. It's inexpensive, ultimately, to make home tests available. So we can get more home tests for other conditions. We've had home tests for diabetes and diabetes management, but other home tests for other medical conditions, maybe home STI tests, right? Sexually transmitted infection tests that could be done at home, other types of conditions. Telehealth has also opened up amazing access for mental health care. So there has been some things I think that will continue and also will grow. I'm going bigger here. And you had mentioned that. Doesn't this all kind of lead to the conclusion that we just need national health care? Absolutely. So, you know, we, we uh, began the conversation with the importance of basic national health care and health care is a human right. And we need to embrace that right. And we need to make sure, you know, women have, have choice and people have an autonomy over their bodies. And this is all part of health justice, reproductive justice, and people need to Fight for their rights. In a democracy, right, rights are not necessarily bestowed. Rights must be gained. Rights must be fought. And we need a stronger, louder, bigger health justice movement. Well, that's all for now. Thanks so much for joining the show. Really my pleasure. Happy to be with you today. That was USC Professor of Clinical Population and Public Health Services, Jeffrey Klausner. He spoke with Digital Villages' Leilani Albano. That's it for this episode of Digital Village. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. I'm Leilani Albano. And we'll see see you online. online.